1118. For Faribault and our region, regular events spotlight some of the best artists and musicians in our area and throughout Minnesota and the upper Midwest. Our beautifully restored facility includes art galleries, classrooms, clay and textile labs, a gift shop and rehearsal spaces, in addition to a 300-seat auditorium. Visit ParadiseCenterForTheArts.org for a full schedule of events or call our box office at 507-332-7372. Good morning, this is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. Thanks for listening to the show that celebrates creating and all things stories. So let's get ready and tune our imaginations together. This week, there are two true stories that I can't shake. They're related, but they are because they're part of the American history and ones that you will recognize. You'll certainly know the names of Hemingway and Hearst. You know, I watched the first installment of the Ken Burns documentary on Ernest Hemingway, a writer, 1899 to 1929. I wanted to know about his early years and the time he spent in World War I. I walked away fascinated by the relationship he had with his mother and father and siblings, aghast at what he witnessed on the front lines of the war, admiring his doggedness in pursuing his writing career, amazed at the heartbreak of his first love, and curious about the cycles of history. Some of this story is the story of today family drama, restlessness and adventure-seeking, war and politics, soldiers with shell shock, anti-Semitism, the press, what is art and what makes a good story, who tells the story. The other thing I did this week was finish the most fascinating book, Not the Camilla We Knew by Rachel Hannell. This book is about one young woman's fall from the highs of love to radicalization and how she became a member of an anti-government group that pulled off the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Some of her story is also the story of today. Family drama, restlessness and adventure-seeking, war and politics, young men and women wanting to change the world, women's rights, the FBI and police, what causes someone to be radicalized, how will we know the whole story and who tells the story? When a story is revealed to you in a way that is fascinating, engaging, and moving, it lingers with you and pulls at your beliefs about the world. This history helps us reflect on some dark events in American history and perhaps see anew the transformations happening right before our eyes. Please join me today as we explore the revealing story of Camilla Hall with author Rachel Hannell. The book, again, is Not the Camilla We Knew from the University of Minnesota Press. It's a fascinating read about a good girl from St. Peter, Minnesota, who explores how she, and the book explores how she transformed from a social worker to a participant in the kidnapping of heiress Patty Hearst and one of the most wanted domestic terrorists in the United States. The story's relevant connections to the happenings in today's political world will linger with you. You will keep thinking about Camilla's life and her family long after you finish the book. Find out more at Rachel Hannell, that's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-H-A-N-E-L dot com, or the University of Minnesota Press at upress.umn.edu. And there's going to be a book, at uh, an event at Content Bookstore on Thursday, February 16th at 7 p.m. So we'll give more information about that. But I want to welcome to the Arts Any Radio studio my guest today. I already had the button up. I, I accidentally hit the wrong one. So I want to welcome Rachel Hannell to Arts Any Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such a thrill. This was really uh, captivating, engrossing, challenging in the in the way of of thinking of what we think we know and how to get behind what the news story is. I just absolutely love this book. And people may recognize you from your uh, first book, We'll Be the Last Ones to Let You Down, a memoir of a gravedigger's daughter, which came out a few years ago, which is also another really well-written story. So congratulations on, on this Thank book. Thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, I want, I'm want i so excited to tell our listeners about this, and I want to thank you for your commitment to this story about Camilla Hall. It took a long time to put this together, but it is such a fascinating exploration of American life. So I thought maybe we would start the conversation where most people will connect with. They know the name Patty Hearst. They've heard of this thing that happened to, to the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. And I was thinking if if that time 
if that at all was something that you remember from growing up or talking about or anything in your childhood that sort of piqued an interest. I know I remember watching the news and my parents just, you know, being flabbergasted that that this would happen, something like this could happen. Right. So I was born in 1974, so I don't have direct (laughs) memories of the event actually happening. But Patty Hearst was one of those names that was always out there. So as I'm getting older, you know, she would pop up here and there. Her sentence was uh, commuted. Uh, She wrote a book. Mm -hmm. So she was on talk shows sometimes. John Waters put her in movies. And so, I mean, she's a Hearst, right? Like she knows how to get media attention. (laughs) So even though I don't remember it actually happening, I do, I, I feel like Patty Hearst was part of our pop culture and what had happened to her was always part of the story. So I did grow up knowing her name and knowing the the name of the SLA. And I think it's interesting because all of us, at least, you know, we all thought, well, how could that have happened to her? You know, what was, what was going on? Was she brainwashed? Did she, you know, actually believe these things? So so that kind of is the setting for, for the, where the story goes. But I think it's really fascinating how you bumped into this story actually was, had another Minnesota connection with a name that was more recent, which is Sarah Jane Olson. And uh, I think that 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 name people remember from I guess it must have been about twenty years ago now. Um, yeah. What what tell us the story how you were stumbled upon this this connection? Yeah, so Sarah Jane Olson was arrested in nineteen ninety nine after being underground for twenty four years. So she had been a member of the SLA under her birth name Kathleen Salaya. So when she was arrested in St. Paul, clearly it was a, a it was a huge national story, but here in Minnesota it really gained a lot of attention. And I was reading the newspaper the day after she was arrested, uh, just really fascinated by her story. But there was a smaller story that ran alongside uh, that just gave a little history of the SLA. And that's where there was a picture of Camilla Hall. And underneath the picture, it said that she was from St. Peter. And I live near Mankato. And I just thought, what? You know, I'd, I'd never heard of this person. I'd never heard of this Southern Minnesota connection to to the SLA. And so just instantly, even by looking at her picture where she looked very warm and friendly, uh, you know, she has this blonde hair. She's, you know, of Swedish descent, very typical Minnesotan. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought, well, I want to know more. This seems like a, a real mystery here of how somebody like her would become part of the SLA. Right. And when we say SLA, that's the Sibionese. Am I saying that right? Yeah, the Sibionese Liberation Army. Yeah. And I've always wondered, what does Sibionese mean? That's a word that I, I, I'm not, I didn't understand that when I was growing up. Everybody just called it the SLA. But what is, what is, is that group? Yeah, so um, it's actually, I think it's like a biological term, you know. So oh. if you're in the sciences, there's this term of symbiosis, which is just like sure. two things, two two different things coming together to unite. And so the SLA's, you know, guiding manifesto was, well, let's let's unite, let's fight for the people who maybe, you know, can't fight for themselves. So they were they were like on paper, um, they were for social justice, they were for racial equality, they were for helping the poor. I mean, kind of things that we think, well, yeah, that makes we want to help people. Mm-hmm. But uh, clearly, you know, by the early 70s, you know, some groups had already tried to do this by nonviolent means, and there hadn't been a lot of progress. So groups like the SLA were just really frustrated. And so they said, well, you know what, yeah, the nonviolent thing didn't work, we need to, to really, you know, take up arms here for an actual revolution to get people's attention. Yeah, and so that is, a, a, you know, an element that comes into Camilla's life much later on, but you really do. And, and I think the the question that you explore in this book is how could this happen to, you know, a preacher's daughter, a girl from a small town, a, you know, old, you know, funny girl, a, you know, girl with lots of friends and, and had a, a you know, was, a, had a, great track right on her life she was headed mm-hmm. off in and so that's I'm wondering if that's what kept you know you compelled to keep pursuing her story and researching and I just I love how it all unfolds for you as you discover these these bits of of her life yeah and that's exactly what it is too you know when when people do these kind of things and they take really violent 
action um, that maybe seems out of character, we just think, oh, they must have snapped or there yeah. must have been, you know, one thing that just shoved them over the edge. And, and you're kind of looking for simplistic explanations to why somebody would make choices like that. Um, but what I really wanted to do in this book, and as I was researching, I realized that there were so many different facets to Camilla's life and so many reasons why she ultimately, you know, made this decision. And I mean, it's not like any, it's not unlike any of us where Mm -hmm. so many different choices lead to our decisions and, and what stopped us from maybe going down the wrong fork of the road where we probably didn't realize, you know, at the beginning, oh, this is really the, the wrong choice. But sometimes you get so far down that you're in too deep and you can't go back. And I think that's very much what happened to Camilla. Yeah, you can't ever say it was X. It was kind of mm-hmm. X plus Y plus Z plus A plus B plus C. I mean, it all has to Definitely. happen in that way. And and so that's kind of a, you know, some of those decisions are random and some are, you know, just <clears throat> happenstance and uh, some, you know, are, are direct, you know, I'd like to go, she chooses to go down that road. So it's really <clears throat> fascinating. But I want to start with her family story because I, I, that's part of where I just was um, in awe, right, of of the way that her family um, had early experiences that shaped all of them and changed all of them. And it is the, it's really a story of family tragedy and deep grief that uh, endures. You go, uh, go through, the, through the details. Uh, and I think it's pretty early in the book, so we're not giving away too much. Uh, but uh, they're a family that lost two children uh, in, in Camilla's life. She was the oldest. And two of her siblings uh, passed away when she was like six and three, I think I remember. Yeah. And so that had a profound effect on the family. And another factor in the family was their commitment to the Lutheran Church. And it was her father who uh, was a pastor. And, you know, that defined the jobs that they took, the places that they went. And uh, they also had a really strong need to help people and make a difference in the world. So it it was was really a family that was besides the grief and the pain of that filled with, you know, adventures and learning and love. And I I keep thinking about how, how did religion play into that? And if that was one of the factors or, you know, what, what were some of the other things of a family who has this tragic experience, the two children die and they decide to go off in a mission to Africa, which, um, is a profound change, but it but it it's so fascinating in your book how you see the patterns that develop because of some of these things. So, talk about what you discovered about their early life that probably contributed to the choices that Camilla made. Right. Yeah. So her dad is a he's a pastor and he's a theology professor. He had uh, taught at Gustavus for many years, but then he did take different jobs over the years. They're a very itinerant family, Mm -hmm. um, really led by George Hall's desire to take different work. So at times he's a professor, and then he's a pastor, and then he's a a university chaplain. He's kind of doing all of these different things. He's a missionary. Um, So so very much kind of led to, to work in different fields um, within his profession. And so, yes, the family, um, at, at one point there were four children, and then the two boys died rather young. And then actually Camilla had a sister too. And so as they're growing up, there's these, now these two girls are left. And then Camilla lost her sister uh, in high school. So by the time Camilla graduates from high school, she has lost all of her siblings, and she is the only one left. And I think, too, and so so in terms of religion and faith, I mean, I don't think there's any way that George and Lorena Hall could have withstood losing three children if not for their faith. I mean, their faith must have just played a huge, yeah. huge role in, in helping them deal with the, these immense losses. Um, but, too, I think that the religion maybe caused uh, some conflict. Uh, uh, Lorena had said in an interview once that, Camilla didn't like going to church um, Mm. and your dad's a pastor. So if you don't like going to church and your dad's a pastor, there's a conflict there. So I think right away, Camilla was a little suspicious of religion and faith, probably because her siblings died. I'm sure she's thinking what kind of God, you know, like something like this happened. So right away, I think there's a conflict there that she never felt particularly 
religious and yet her parents are. So um, I think being the only child left, she maybe felt a little guilty about being so out of sorts with her parents at that point. So as we know, religion and faith is so complicated and, <laughs> and makes up for so many interesting family dynamics. And I think that's what was happening here, too. Yeah, and, and I don't know how to even ask this question, so I'm going to make an attempt at it. But as I was thinking about that role of religion and the fact that they went on this missionary trip to Africa, um, they went, oh, what was the name of the country? It was... Uh, uh, Tanzania. Now it's Tanzania, yep. Right, uh, Tanganyika, which I found I'd forgotten about that uh, name, and they um, are. It's it's just in my mind. I'm thinking about this idea of the role of missionaries in Africa and the role of radicalization and terrorism. That I know they're not equal, and I'm not trying to make any comparisons. But there's this idea of trying to, as humans, wanting people to you know, come to our way of thinking to uh, embrace the things that we know to um, convince somebody that a different way is better. And that we can, you know, if we just if you just believe you will understand. And uh, did you ever ponder that idea? Yeah, you know, when you read about missionary work, and this would have been in the mid 1950s, and Mm -hmm. to think about Africa, especially, and coming out of World War II, and everything's just been divided up by European powers. You yes. know, I mean, it's just so, so very unequal. And, and I do think about that, that, you know, I think mission work at its heart has a good place, kind of like the SLA on paper, like, okay, you know, how can we argue with, you know, wanting people to have, you know, have better lives. But I did feel like, oh, wow, you know, I'm sure, you know, I have no idea what Camilla was thinking, kind of watching her dad do this kind of mission work. But I wonder if later in her life that that did have some kind of factor in like, oh, like kind of who, who were we to go over there and tell people living there that, oh, you're doing it wrong and here's the right way to do it. You know, that certainly could have been uh, a perspective that she had. Yeah, it it fascinated me. And probably the part about that trip that really just, I can't, I keep thinking about, like I said, this book, again, folks, this is not the Camilla we knew by Rachel Hannell. And it, the piece that sticks with me is that when they came back to St. Peter after that Africa trip, I think they spent a year, was it? Or was it about that? And um, they came back and the, 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 girls went to school and their friends and classmates ridiculed them and ostracized them for their African experience. And I was just so saddened by this because, you know, the kids in the and, and even the community closed off this cultural exchange and, and the possibilities of expanding their own world and um, how hurtful it was, how they, they responded to, you know, I, I've we've all traveled and you come back a different person and you want to tell people about what you saw. And, and it made the girls, you know, get quiet. And I think that's where Camilla, my, my take on it is that's where she learned to sort of not reveal her true self to people. Um, Uh And it was a big turning point for her. Um, And it it also uh, had, had the daughters go directly back to their mom, Lorena, because, you know, they had in in Africa. They they spent a lot of time just with their mom because their dad was traveling into all these. He had a big responsibility, a big geographical region he had to cover. Um, and, and so I, you know, I just I don't know. I think think about the time and place in America where that could have happened. It just feels so disheartening. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. You know, that was just 70 years ago. And to think about, I mean, I do think about that trip, that that mission work in Africa where Camilla was able to live there for about a year and a half. I mean, in the mid-1950s, you just think, who was doing that, you know, back then? (laughs) And, And what a rich, huge experience that must have been for her to just really be able to see yes. other parts of the world and, um, and to come, you know, but that, that just wasn't very accepted, right? Like people just weren't doing that 70 years ago. So for her to come back to St. Peter and really be teased and bullied because of that, it, it is very disheartening and very sad. Mm-hmm. And so you can see, and I think that's the wonderful role you as the writer get to do is to, you know, place these, these, 
meaningful moments in her life uh, for us to share and kind of think, okay, so that may have, you know, you, you, it's, it's like a mystery you're all trying to solve at the same time as you read through this. And, I, I, you know, I would imagine that um, the other thing that happened in the 50s that had, was a positive thing for you, or maybe even 50s to, to the 70s, was letter writing, because letters became a great source material for you. And I thought that you you were able to include a lot of, you know, her letters back to her parents and uh, pieces of, of, you know, her father's writings. Um, you know, there there's a, a really deep psychological analysis of Camilla that comes up a little bit later. Of course, there were articles written about her. Um, she had poems and artwork. So talk about the sources and how you, as a, a researcher, were, you know, you just worked for so many years to track this all down. Yeah, you know, it's... Um, at first, you just think that, well, I don't have very much. I went to Gus Davis uh, archives for the first time when I first uh, saw her story. That's where her father had left many documents just because that's the place where he had spent the most time. So there were a few letters there and there was a unpublished memoir that George Hall had written. So that was really valuable. But with Camilla being dead and her parents being dead and not having any family members, no extended family members who knew them because they moved around so much. I, at first I didn't really have any living people that mm-hmm. I could talk to. And so I thought, wow, I, I really don't have very much here. This might be a challenge, but you know, the more research you do, it just, there's kind of this slow snowballing effect. And so then I'm reading more things, and I got in touch with the man who wrote that psychological analysis of her. He did it um, as his Ph.D. dissertation back in the 70s. Uh, so I got in touch with him. Well, here he had all sorts of letters that he had kept, and he had kept the cassette tapes of the interviews. And so you kind of just never know who you reach out to who might have just some great information. I did find a friend of hers. Well, actually, the friend found me. So this is really the nice thing about having a blog and, and putting things out there as you're working on it, because people will find you, too. And so this friend had found me, and she had pictures, she had photographs from mm-hmm. the early, from 1970 of her and Camilla at art fairs. And I just think what a treasure that was to actually see these photographs. Uh, so it's a matter of, you know, you're doing this research, and I think a big, a big Part of it, you know, if anybody's doing this kind of research is to not do it in secret, you know, to to let people know, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm working on. Like I said, I had blogged about this process as I was doing it. So the more you put yourself out there, the more chances you have that people might hear, see about it and be able to reach out to you as well. Yeah, and it's almost like the researcher has that same pathway that a person who you know whose life you're tracing where these random things end up you know making connections or revealing things or leading you to different outcomes that you didn't anticipate and so it's also a, a a fabulous part of the trail and you do put yourself in a little bit in the story as well and help us to kind of go along with you as you discover or learn about these new sources or new new references and I can't help but think we don't have handwritten letters anymore. I, I mean, I can't think of the last time in the mail a, a long handwritten letter came to me. Um, and, and you know, that is, I, I don't know that emails are going to quite, or texts or haven't, you know, TikToks or things like that are going to be sources in that sort of, uh, in the mindset, right? Because they're so short. Yeah, yeah. And they, they're they so short and they're ephemeral, right? Right. I mean, it, it, I did have this conversation, you know, just a few days ago at a reading about this very same thing that you think of all the photographs you have or the photographs you have on your phone. Well, I mean, I'm not printing those out. <laughs> and if something happens to my phone, they're, they're gone. So it is going to be a completely different challenge for researchers, you know, 50 years from now, trying to, to go back to this time and, and gather information. So let's write handwritten letters, folks, because there's, uh, there's nothing, so. nothing <laughs> like them. Maybe that's what we can learn from this. Uh, we talked a little bit about those uh, key turning points for Camilla. And so, you know, she has this I, you know, generally healthy, happy, growing up in, you know, uh, and probably something unremarkable, right? Just a, a average girl's growing up. And then there's some key turning points that happen. Uh, she 
begins to do social work, which feels like a natural outgrowth of her family background. She wants to help. She works with young uh, pregnant girls and uh, works in Duluth. And I thought it was really fascinating, the, the pieces that you, that you brought forward about how you know, she, at first she was such a rule follower and <laughs> definitely wanted, but then as she got to know the world, I think this happens to a lot of people, right? You You start to actually exist and realize the gray of, you know, there's less black and white in the world than you probably hoped or thought there might be. And so she started sort of making exceptions as she became more politically active in making the world more fair and better and brighter. And, um, you know, that that was really pivotal, I think, in in her uh, future. And she came to California as well, which was seemed random, but there was a coworker, I believe, that moved out there and um that that so I I love the way that we get to see that right and you can only see that through looking retrospectively at somebody's life you can't in the moment she had no idea right that she was going to pick an apartment it downstairs from Pat who uh yeah Soltisic? how do you say that Oh, oh, Pat, uh, Patricia Soltisic, yeah. Soltisic, okay, who later becomes yeah, yeah. Ms. Moon, which is a very memorable name. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And eventually her lover, and, and it's, that's her, the Pat, Ms. Moon's boyfriend is the one that has a connection with an ex-prisoner that forms the SLA. Um, you know, she, just all these little pieces of her life, um, just it would seem like random choices make those connections. And and I was wondering if there was lots of pieces of her life that you ended up not putting in, or so you're selecting the ones that feel like they're most meaningful, or how did you decide what was going to become a part of the book and what was going to be? I'm sure you had way more material than what ended up in the book. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that uh, everything I came across, just because there, there really ended up not being a a ton, right? You know, mm. there's just not a ton of information. You know, Camilla has these letters, but it's not like she wrote journals extensively or something like that. So I felt like for the most part, everything that I that I could find about her was did mean something. I mean, she did, I think I have maybe 50 letters. And so there are a lot of things in the letters, you know, that I didn't include or, or couldn't verify or that kind of thing. So there, there was a, a little bit of that picking and choosing, but I really looked at it like, well, probably every kind of major move that she made did end up having an influence on her later decisions. That is so fascinating to, to think about. And, and, you know, one of the things you write about in that move to California that uh, probably only Minnesotans will fully appreciate, and I had never thought of this before, was that you said, yes, a lot of people leave Minnesota, but you don't think it's to escape the cold. You think it's to um, leave Minnesota because of the absence of color. (laughs) I found that was, and that's just an example of how beautifully written this this book is and how thought-provoking it is. Uh, For those of you who have a copy, the book, again, is Not the Camilla We Knew, One Woman's Path from Small Town America to the Symphony, I will stumble on that word, Symphony. It's a long one. Yeah. <laughs> the Symbionese. Symbionese yep. Liberation Army by Rachel Hannell. And if you're uh, fascinated, as I am with this story, you'd be sure to mark your calendar for Thursday, February 16th. And that's at 7 p.m. in-store or on Facebook Live of Content Bookstore. You can, uh, there's going to be a reading and a conversation with Rachel. So it's very exciting that that's happening. Contentbookstore.com has all the details. And it's, uh, we're lucky to have you coming to, to Northfield. And in the in that um, section that you write about Minnesota, I, I I really was fascinated. You talk about here's our our seasons, right? Green, brown, white, <laughs> and then that tiny yeah. little <laughs> couple weeks of you know those beautiful dancing, uh, fiery colors of of fall. Um, and and so I thought that was um, an interesting way to to talk about. Um, Minnesota, and then her move to California, because she writes a lot about how much she loved the weather in California. And one of the things that you did, too, in researching this book was actually go see the places that, you know, you had addresses, you had 
uh, names of, of, you know, connections that she had out there. How did actually being in the physical space of where she had been uh, inform you as a writer? Well, yeah, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like being able to actually physically put yourself somewhere where that, that you're writing about. Um, there's just something about seeing things in 3D, actually being there, getting a sense of the weather and what it looks like. So for me, a big part of it was, was description. You know, I, I went to California in 2008, um, and actually it was really I think they, well, they still do, right? But even that summer, they were having some <laughs> fires. And so the, the sky was just like this white, just kind of odd. But just to be able to look at the Bay Area and get a sense of, okay, this is what she saw. This is her the view from her house. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where she worked. And here's how far it was from, you know, downtown San Francisco. And just things like that um, really helped, I think, just make the, it just makes the writing a little bit more vivid because, you're able to put those kind of descriptive details in there. You're a very talented writer, and it was a a read that I just, it was so captivating, and I think that that's your skills as a researcher and writer, and so I want to compliment you on it, because, you know, you you think, well, I'm not sure that, you know, I want to read about a, um, you know, radicalized young girl from way back when, right? But you do yeah. want you do want to read about it because there's so much in this story. And I have to say, as a as a parent, I kept thinking, I've got to learn something that I can take away from this book to protect my kids, right? Because we yeah. all want to be safe, and and I think especially in today's world, uh, you know, we can see those parallels, right? There are you hear of families and it's just so sad when they say, Oh, we don't talk to, you know, sister, cousin, aunt, grandma, whoever, who has all these crazy ideas. And Mm. there's, there's echoes of today in her story. Was that on your mind as you were writing? Yeah, it it really became apparent um, around 2000. So I've been working on this book for a very long time. I mean, really, since I saw her picture in 1999. But by early 2000, I was ready to really, like, give it one more kind of revision and then start sending it out. I was about to go on sabbatical from my job at Minnesota State Mankato. So I thought, well, this is great. I have all this time now. I'm going to really dig into this. And it was May of 2000. And then George Floyd was murdered. And then all, you know, of course, all the protests sprung up across the nation and the world because of that. And I really felt like, okay, this this isn't going away. Like, this isn't just a a protest that's going to pop up and then we're going to forget about it. Like, something is fundamentally changing right now. And I thought... Wow. I, I, it just felt like people would understand Camilla's time and place now that they wouldn't have understood had the book been published five years ago. I think um, that's because true. now, you know, every, so many people are active and active in their causes. And it's like we went through a period of time where that just wasn't a thing. So, yeah, I felt like the timing was very, um, it felt very strangely weird to me. <laughs> But and and that makes it a far you know a, as you said it's it's very powerful in that that you can see those elements brewing right you can see the shifts and and changes and uh, it's it's fascinating and so I really do highly recommend this book I'm so excited to share it with our listeners uh, and to you know hopefully get more people to come to the event at content it's. Uh, I also couldn't help but think how the world has changed a little bit and how this might have affected Camilla because, you know, she um, was a, a girl. Um, oh, there was there was a word. Uh, was it a Jeffrey Tubin used Zatfig? Is that no? Oh, yeah. Zatfig. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a word that I didn't didn't know to describe her uh, that I thought was, you know, she she was a bulkier girl. Right. Um, she mm-hmm. um, but as she went to California she actually gets fit and thinks about vegetarianism and, you know, goes hiking and sees herself changing. And it was, I think it was a letter she wrote where she talks about this. And this really sticks with me too, because it makes me wonder um, if she was able to be more of herself here in Minnesota, she would have been, had a different path. Cause she says, I guess I was always afraid I wasn't normal. And so I hit it with fat but now I'm free and don't feel I have anything to hide. I'm just me and I'm okay. 
And it was a powerful paragraph for those of you that have the book. It's on page 82. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in the, that world when she was there in the 70s, um, you know, there was a risk to uh, being more of yourself, right? To being different. You know, she had a lesbian relationship. Um, she had all these, these ideas about peace and love and, and, you know, was it part of that hippie culture in San Francisco? Um, and it's sad to me that, that she couldn't have found that here, right? She couldn't have been her fully herself. Um, and that she never told her parents, Ms. Moon was just a friend, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's yep. such a complicated part of the story, um, and and so let's talk a little bit about Ms. Moon because she's one of the characters that that has always been a question to people. You know, how much influence did she have? Who was the one influencing who in that relationship? Yeah, and you know, that is how I like to think about it. If you do read media reports at the time, it, it really sounds like oh, Ms. Moon was the the mastermind and she led Camilla into this almost like Camilla was a, a zombie or had no mind of her own. <laughs> she just was lured in. But I do like to think about, you know, kind of the back and forth and, and why might Ms. Moon have been attracted to Camilla. And, you know, Camilla was about five years older than Ms. Moon. So I think that Ms. Moon saw in Camilla someone who was very worldly and who had traveled and who was getting confident and feeling good about herself um, that I think that that was very appealing to Ms. Moon, too. So in that way, you know, I, th- I don't think it was a totally unequal relationship. I think they both gave each other a lot. And they were, t- they were on and off for about two years. So it wasn't just some fleeting, you know, c- quick romance. I mean, I think they really did have um, deep feelings for each other that went both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, and I think that's maybe what, what makes it fascinating and also is a struggle, right? Because there's, you're never going to be able to actually say, aha, this one thing <laughs> is the reason it all happened. So just let's stop that from happening to, and it'll never happen again in the world, right? It's that yeah. <laughs> magic formula that we want the answer to. We want to be able to um, stop this from, you know, people being radicalized and turning to violence as a solution and so that I love the complexity that the book reveals and the way that you approach the topic and and lead us through her life story. And it's it's there's I mean, there's so much. I think we talked earlier a little bit about that idea of uh, her, how her father sort of would get into a place and then. Maybe, I don't know if you ever determined if it was boredom, success, uh, frustration, he, he would then move on to the next. He, he was always looking for that next adventure. And that, that was part of her trajectory as well. Um, she had this wanderlust, right? Um, yeah. And she was always looking for that, that place that would make it all right or better. Um, and, and so it's, it makes you think, well, why is it so hard to be happy where we are? Uh, how did you start putting those pieces together that there were those parallels between her father's life and her life? Yeah, and I, I really felt um, a, a connection with that because in, in many ways, you know, I I totally understand where George Hall was coming from. I mean, I I have had my same job for, for quite a while, but, you know, every once in a while you start to think, oh, maybe there is something better out there or you know, so I think you either get bored or you get frustrated where you are and you think that the grass is greener on the other side. So you start looking for something else. And so I think that's a very common approach that a lot of people have, that they might jump from one thing to another, hoping that something is better somewhere else. And I think for George, it was, I think a lot of it was like professional satisfaction, that he was very good at what he did. I've heard from people who knew him, um, that, they, that he was their pastor, and I hear nothing but just really wonderful things about him. He was really regarded quite highly. So I think he was good at what he did and, and wanted to keep pursuing things that he was good at. But yeah, then I did start to see that, oh, well, Camilla's moving from one thing to another too, and social work isn't working out for her. So now she wants to be an artist, but then that doesn't work out for her because it's hard to earn enough money. So she decides that she has to move and try to get a job doing something else. So she becomes a a gardener and works outside and works in parks. Um, So it really did start to become apparent that 
uh, that she was like her father in many ways. Yeah, and and there's a, a whole uh, section on on that, and and her letters are really revealing and much appreciated. And it's, so it's it's a uh, you get to hear her words of what she's telling her parents about her life, and it's it's really fascinating how her parents. Um, they moved on with their life and that, that whole psychology of the family. So I, I'll let people read that as you go through because it's fascinating to me. You have kind of her early years, you know, what happened with the SLA. And then at the end, there's a section where you kind of are reflecting on um, what you don't know about Camilla and what you um, what you learned. And it's, it's a, I think it's a, one of the, the really uh, important pieces of the book. And I really appreciated this, that, you know, you brought up the idea of those letters being part of your source, but they're all very positive. And you thought about your own way that you've interacted with your own mother <laughs> and mm-hmm. how you sometimes worry, well, I'm not going to um, worry her about something going on because it's, it's surely it'll just be fine. I'll, I'll, I don't want to bother. Right. I don't want to upset her. I don't want to, um, Get, so I think that, that you you so you're sort of second guessing right <laughs> what what's going on in that family I, I thought that was a really brilliant addition to the book yeah definitely um because I think that's a very I think that's a very midwestern way of looking at things and and maybe things are changing now and that would be good but if you think about growing up in the mid century or into the sixties or seventies that there was just this quiet stoicism. Um, in the in the Midwest, where families didn't really want to talk about kind of these these darker uh, moments, but we can see that that has such a really uh, pretty enormous cost uh, to keep things quiet or to to not talk things through. So um, I, I think that's something that we need to keep in mind that those conversations may not be easy, but also not talking about them can be quite destructive too. Yeah, you have this this um, section. It's on page one forty, and she had gone back to be with her family for Christmas. It's nineteen seventy four, and they kind of later her parents report. Yeah, that we thought there was something, but we just didn't know what it was, and so we thought maybe she'd just work it out. <laughs> um, and and you say many people will read the preceding paragraph and wonder why George and Lorena didn't press Camilla. If they had asked her one simple question, maybe she would have opened up. Maybe Camilla would have seen the concern in her parents' eyes, and their warmth would have melted her resolve. Getting out of the SLA at that point might have been tricky, even dangerous, but perhaps they could have figured out a way to make it work. But I understand George and Lorena's reluctance to pry. I do not fault in. I do not fault their si- find fault in their silence. This type of reticence rings. Boy, I'm really stumbling here. This type of reticence rings true to me. I see it play out often here in the Midwest, especially in families who have their roots like the Halls in the stoic Northern European countries of Germany, Norway, and Sweden. These cultures value independence and making your own way through life. You are expected to manage problems on your own. That was. Uh, really profound insight, I thought, of how, it, I mean, they just had this sense. And, and of course, it's easy to look back, right, and say, oh, if only we had, gosh, I, you know, what what question should I have said? Even her friends said that of, of, of her. Um, but there is that characterization that, that is part of the story. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, yeah, it, it, it really, there's, there are so many pieces, parts in her life where you think, wow, if only one thing, one small thing could have made such a huge difference, you know, had she not moved next door to Ms. Moon when yeah. she first got to Berkeley, or if her parents, you know, would have, would have had a conversation with her at that point at that last Christmas. But yeah, in retrospect, what can you do, right? Um, and, and like I had written there, I certainly don't, fault them. I mean, that's how, that's how they knew to go about things. And perhaps they had been through similar situations with Camilla where they didn't really talk about things, but they just figured she would work through it. And she did. And so, you know, there was really nothing to suggest that this might have been a, anything different than other situations she might have been in before. Right. And I suppose as a parent, they're thinking, well, if I push, then I'm going to push her harder towards yeah. that thing. And that's also, you know, you don't don't want that, right? You want her to keep coming back to visit and, you know, 
keep checking in and, and be a part of the family. So those dynamics were absolutely uh, really intriguing to, to explore in the book. I, I think, you know, it's it's clear that, that Camilla has a story to teach us things, that this story is important in the world. And you, you wrestled with that about whether it was okay to, to tell the story. In the end, what do you think it is that she's trying to teach us or how how putting this together helped you to see the world anew? Yeah, I think that, you know, something that we can keep in mind going forward from this story is is having those conversations and having open dialogue. You know, we do live in a time right now where we just want to shut people down or they think a certain way, so we're just going to shut them out and not want to talk, talk to them at all. But, you know, what if we did have these open conversations. Um, I, I think that, that that's a big thing that we can take away from this book, a big idea. I just think about what if Camilla had had really open conversations mm-hmm. with her parents or with her friends? Um, I mean, maybe it wouldn't have changed anything. Who knows? I mean, that, that's not a magic, you know, a magic bullet to save everything, um, but maybe it can't hurt. So, it, you know, if we, if we see people in our lives and we're thinking, wow, they they really seem to have some some really kind of radical ideas. Um, why not talk to them about it and see if we can have some conversations? Yeah, it brings up for me the question of, uh, you know, how much should we or, or, you know, how do we bring up the idea of mental health as a as a positive thing to explore and be, you know, checking in on people and asking, like you said, asking questions mm-hmm. And uh, that was not a place. I mean, in the, in that family that suffered so much grief, it was astounding to me that they pretty much, you know, uh, boxed it in, right? Okay, we had the funeral and <laughs> we, don't, we don't tell people about it. We don't talk about it. We don't say their names. We don't, um, you know, talk about the hurt. It was, it was, so, so it was a, a way of life, right? That they didn't, feelings and ideas and those things weren't weren't important but they are and we're starting to see that in our world and that that kept coming up for me that idea of there are several people within the book that you think they could have used some professional help with (laughs) some of their thinking and maybe the world would be different if we all embraced that I don't know yeah exactly I think it's it's worth talking about at least having uh, those conversations yeah, and you've uh, started the book tour, and as, as I mentioned earlier, you'll be coming to Northfield to Content Bookstore. That's on Thursday, February 16th, either in-store or on Facebook Live at contentbookstore.com events. And uh, what has been the reaction to the book? How does it feel for you after working on it for so long to sort of let it go off into the world? And have there been anybody, any people who knew Camilla who have reached out to you? Yeah, it's been so nice because when you work on a book for so long and it's and it's just yourself or maybe a, a couple of people in a in your writing group might have seen it, <laughs> um, to actually have it out there and see how readers respond to it, I mean, that's really the most gratifying part of being a writer. And yes, I was hoping that when the book came out, I would hear from more people. I mean, clearly I, I couldn't track down everyone who had ever known Camilla, <laughs> so I knew there were a lot of people out there who, who are still around who knew her and... I had an event in Minneapolis last month, and a few of her classmates from high school showed up, and they had some pictures that they shared with me. So I feel like I could almost have an addendum to the book or something with these pictures and with these stories. I'm in touch with a woman who worked with her up in Duluth for just Mm. that one year that Camilla was up there. She has been just so, so open and, and wonderful. And what I'm really getting from people who knew Camilla, that she is somebody who stuck with them. She is somebody that they never forgot. And they talk to me and they talk and they talk and they talk <laughs> like you can just, they, they want to talk about this woman who they all remember her as being friendly and warm and such a good friend. Like you can just tell that everybody who knew her cared so deeply about her and wondered what happened and wondered mm-hmm. why she would have done something like this. And so I'm, I'm really getting a, a really lovely response to the book from the people who knew Camilla. Oh, I think that's fascinating. And, and as, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, I hope Camilla knew how much she meant to those people. I, I wonder, she see, it, 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 because that 
maybe that also would have changed if she understood that because, you know, she was, she kept herself pretty close. Like a lot of people didn't know about her political views or her involvement with the SLA, even when she was active in the group. And uh, so I'm, I'm wondering how much she received that, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that she did. You know, she did keep herself pretty closed off. And, and I, I could see where maybe she was that type of person who, who doesn't realize the impact she has, you know, for, for whatever reason, but certainly right. If she, if she had, um, things maybe had been different. Well, I will always remember Camilla and I'm so thrilled that you invested in your time and, you know, energies to keep, you know, doggedly pursuing this, this research and sharing her story with us so that we can all read, not the Camilla we knew one woman's path from small town America to the Sibini. I did it again. Sibai, no, (laughs) Symbionese, (laughs) Liberation Army. I'm just going to say SLA from now on. Yeah, I think that sounds great. (laughs) And I can't wait to meet you when you come to Northfield. I thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Thank you so much. I just so much appreciate it. I appreciate your careful read of the book. I'm very excited to come to Northfield. I love content. I love the staff at content. So I'm so happy that I can do something there. Absolutely. So folks, uh, join us. And thank you, Rachel, for for being on Arts A&E Radio. Hopefully you'll come to us with your next project. Uh, I'd love to hear what you do because it's just amazing. So thank you. Thank you. I hope it doesn't take me another 20 years. <laughs> me too. <laughs> take care. We'll see you soon. Thank Folks, you. this is Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. I want to thank you so much for listening to the show and celebrating with us. I hope you'll always remember to add some Art Zany to your life. And in the meantime, until next time, enjoy your imagination. You've been listening to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist. Art Zany is brought to you each week by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts in Faribault. Connect and experience art at the Northfield Arts Guild. Visit our galleries, arts festival, and take in a performance at our theater featuring a full season of dramas, comedies, and musicals. The Guild's gift shop showcases unique art from over 100 local and regional member artists. Come enjoy music from the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra or the 411 Concert Series. We invite you to explore your creativity in one of our classes. All are welcome at the Northfield Arts Guild. To learn how you can be a part, visit northfieldartsguild.org or call 507-645-8877. 95.1 The One.